St. Patrick's Day. Happy St. Patrick's Day to everybody. But today is also a day when six Asian American women were murdered in cold blood, perhaps because they were Asian in background. So we have a lot to celebrate and a lot to mourn. You'll hear about both on The Dirt Show. St. Patrick's Day to uh, celebrate that great holiday. I'm wearing my, my Celtics green, which I wore to hundreds of Boston Celtics uh, basketball games. And I thought that the celebration of St. Patrick's Day is a good uh, reason for discussing the history of America as a country that not only welcomed immigrants, we are a nation of immigrants. If you look at the accomplishments of America over the past uh, hundred uh, or so or more years, you see so many of it comes from immigrants of uh, Irish background, Italian background, Greek background, Russian background, Asian background, African background, uh, every possible background you can imagine. There's no country in the world, no country in the history of the world um, that has a more diverse uh, ethnic uh, population. Israel's probably second uh, because it ingathered Jews from uh, all over the world. But the United States, I think, leads the way. We are the leading country in the world in accepting uh, immigrants and in uh, uh, immigrants helping us uh, see our full potential as a country. But that's the good news. The bad news is the history of America is also a history of anti-immigrant discrimination. Um, it probably started with the Irish, uh, although one probably can trace it even earlier. Obviously, if one talks about African slaves coming over, that's a whole different situation, and we can talk about that separately. But in terms of people voluntarily coming to the country as immigrants to try to strengthen our, our country— I guess it really begins with anti-Irish uh, immigration. Um, in the days of the Civil War, uh, we were notorious for taking young Irish men right off the boats and sending them as cannon fodder to fight in the, in the Civil War. Films have been made about it. Books have been written about it. Anti-Irish discrimination was, was, was rampant. Um, and uh, it continued, obviously, uh, through into the 20th uh, century, uh, when I was growing up, discrimination in my neighborhood was more against uh, Italian-Americans, uh, the difference being Irish-Americans spoke the language. They could become the policemen. They could become the teachers, um, whereas Italian-Americans and Jewish-Americans and Greek-Americans didn't speak the language. So there was double discrimination um, against uh, them. And uh, it continued, continued on. I remember when we were thinking about colleges to apply to um, uh, when I was in high school, uh, we were told by our college advisor, if, you're, if your name ends in, in Berg or Steen, if you're Jewish or Wits, don't apply to Yale. You're not going to get in. But we were also told you're not alone. If your name begins with a vowel or ends with a vowel, O'Brien, O'Reilly, uh, Rizzuto, uh, you're not going to get into Yale uh, if you're Italian-American or Irish-American. Uh, the discrimination against Irish-American, Italian-Americans, Jewish-Americans uh, was, was rampant. But today I want to focus a little bit more on anti-Asian immigration or anti-Asian 
discrimination uh, because of the horrible shootings that occurred yesterday in the Atlanta area. We don't know for sure, we don't know for absolute sure, that these shootings were uh, racially or ethnically uh, based. We know that uh, apparently six of the eight women who were killed were, were of Asian background and two were not. The massage parlors that were attacked were Asian in focus uh, and in advertisement. So if a person wanted to kill Asians, this would be a good target. But, you know, we can't jump to conclusions. But there is at least prima facie suggestion that this may be part of a growing, growing pattern of anti-Asian hate, hate crimes. But let's talk for a moment about Asian immigration. It was one of the worst scandals in American history, morally and legally and in every other possible way. Uh, there were all kinds of restrictions on Asian Americans uh, becoming citizens, on Asians entering the United States, particularly in the West Coast. There were all kinds of quotas imposed and all kinds of restrictions uh, imposed. Uh, and it was virtually impossible for people to come over unless they came over as laborers to work on the railroads and they didn't have citizenship. It led to a number of Supreme Court cases, Yikwo versus Hopkins, the leading one, and others, which laid out what the criteria were for um, uh, how to deal with um, Asian Americans and people who don't have status as American citizens but want to live in, in, in this country. And the discrimination was rampant. It came to a head, or really a, a, a nadir, a low, during the Second World War when anti-Japanese um, attitudes were uh, at their uh, highest. Uh, after all, we had been attacked by uh, the Japanese Air Force uh, at Pearl Harbor, inflicting not only great humility uh, and, and, and humiliation on, on America for being the focus of attack, but also killing so many brave American sailors and, and soldiers. And, and the result was that President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who had already closed the door to Jewish immigration in uh, the 1930s, was one of the worst presidents when it came to uh, um, uh, rescuing people from the horrors of the, of the Holocaust. Uh, the anti-Jewish quotas had been imposed earlier in the second decade of the 20th century. But uh, Roosevelt had his State Department shut down uh, all efforts to try to rescue Jews from the Holocaust. But um, the uh, uh, decision by Franklin Delano Roosevelt to follow the recommendation of the Army and allow the detention of 110,000 Americans, 110,000 Americans of Japanese background, uh, many of them American citizens, some of them not, uh, many of them born in the United States. The only thing that uh, was the criteria for detention and, and separation from their homes and forced sale of their truck farms and uh, homes and other uh, ownership on, on the West Coast, the only criteria was if you had, quote, Japanese blood, whatever that means, Japanese genetics, Japanese heritage, pure racism. No, no justification beyond uh, racism. And it was, it was accepted by some of the leading liberals of the day. Earl Warren ultimately became the most liberal Supreme Court Chief Justice, um, approved it. Uh, Hugo Black, the, perhaps another one of the most liberal Supreme Court Justices, approved it. Abe Fortas, who was then in the Justice Department, approved it. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, of course, 
approved it. Uh, there was very little opposition. The ACLU did not take a strong position um, against it until until later. Um, and it was rampant discrimination, and it caused tremendous uh, dislocation of Japanese-American families, tremendous economic loss. I worked with Justice Goldberg years later on uh, a reparation program for Japanese-Americans. It was a pittance. I think we gave them each $25,000. Uh, they lost hundreds of thousands of dollars. They lost their livelihoods. Uh, the one thing that didn't happen is that families were not separated. Um, families were kept as a unit in the detention centers. And in fact, um, uh, uh, there was an increase in the birth rate and a, a decrease in illness rates. So there were some, um, uh, not I wouldn't call them positives, but non-negatives uh, as to how we dealt with the detention. But it was detention nonetheless. And even liberal mayors like Mayor LaGuardia of New York uh, when asked whether he would accept uh, some Japanese Americans, because the key was to keep them out of the West Coast. In other words, it wasn't necessarily, the goal wasn't to lock them up in detention centers. The goal was to get rid of them, keep them out of the West Coast, because the assumption that if they're Japanese by birth or heritage or blood, whatever that means, they will become spies, saboteurs, uh, etc. It was a racial stereotyping of the worst kind. So if they could go to the middle of the country or to the East Coast, there wouldn't be as much of a problem. The fear was if the Japanese Army and Navy Air Force were to invade the West Coast, they would have collaborators and fellow travelers. There's no evidence to prove that. Ultimately, many Japanese Americans served loyalty in the United States Army. They did not serve in the Pacific. They served uh, in the Atlantic. But nonetheless, they served with great, great distinction. So it was pure, pure racial discrimination. And the Supreme Court upheld it uh, in a terrible, terrible decision. And uh, Justice Jackson wrote a brilliant dissent in which he said, look, if the Army made a decision just to put these people off the West Coast, if they just made the decision, that would be an incident. It would be terrible, but it would disappear when the war was over. But for the Supreme Court to affirm that decision is to create a precedent that lies around like a loaded weapon ready to be used in the hands of any tyrant. And that weapon did lay around for many, many, many years. I suspect today the Supreme Court would not uphold that kind of racial discrimination and in a number of opinions. They've suggested that that was uh, one of the worst opinions in American history, but it was widely accepted by the American public. Widely accepted because of anti-Japanese discrimination. Of course, I remember going to the movies during the Second World War. I was, you know, seven years old, eight years old, and uh, seeing uh, in Batman movies and Superman movies and other movies the anti-Japanese stereotypes and discriminations that uh, operated. I remember we, we sang a song as a kid. Everybody sang the song. It was from a Walt Disney uh, movie. It's Whistle While You Work. Hitler is a jerk. Mussolini is a meanie. And the Japs are worse today. We wouldn't use a word like that. Uh, but I think it's important to use that word to show the discrimination that was rampant back in the day. I'm not going to fall into the trap of not using a word when it's essential to 
uh, illustrate the point. Um, I am making a point that we had anti-Japanese discrimination in our songs, and it's important to hear the song to know that the discrimination was there. And to go back and watch some of the movies, you can probably get them on, on Google and see the stereotypes. So we had rampant, rampant anti-Asian discrimination. Now, I'm here to tell you that without regard to whether or not the killings uh, yesterday uh, were based on anti-Asian feelings, we're seeing an uptick in anti-Asian hate crimes uh, all over the country. We're seeing it on the West Coast. We're seeing it in New York. We're seeing it in any cities that have what are called Chinatowns or Koreatowns or any of these ethnic areas where you can get the greatest food in the world. And I live in those areas because I love Asian food. Uh, and uh, we see uh, thousands now of cases that appear to be hate crimes, racially motivated. Maybe the provoking event was calling the uh, coronavirus, the, the Chinese virus or focusing on the, the, the Chinese uh, uh, fault um, uh, in not uh, containing the virus in, in Wuhan when it first came out. That may be the provoking cause, but you don't get that unless there's a deep underlying willingness to stereotype and generalize. Why should an American citizen uh, who's been in this country for, his family's been in this country 100 years, but whose great-great-grandparents lived in a different part of China, in, 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 in Shanghai or in Hong Kong. Why should they be attacked? Because some Chinese leaders today in Wuhan or in the central Beijing government um, made mistakes or acted improperly in relation to the virus. That, that's just bigotry. That's just the simplest form of bigotry. And we see another form of discrimination. I'm not going to use the word bigotry because that's reserved for a very, very special kind of hatred. But we're seeing another kind of discrimination against Asian Americans today at American universities. Look, Harvard won its case, uh, and uh, it's, a mixed, it's a mixed picture uh, of what happened. Harvard was sued by, and Yale is being sued, and other uh, universities have been sued on the ground that it is harder to get into the schools, all things being equal, if you're of Asian background than if you're not. The universities answer by saying, essentially, they don't put it exactly this way, but this is their answer. Uh, Asian applicants are so good, they're so highly qualified, that if we didn't take their Asian-ness into account, the school would be dominated by Asian-American students, and that would and the kind of diversity that we're uh, looking for. Uh, and so it's a little harder. Now, they use excuses. You know, they don't say they're discriminating against um, Asian Americans. They use character phrases that are code words, often for discrimination. So look, Harvard won its case. Uh, it's a private university. Uh, it won its case. But I'm here to tell you, I've been in academia, you know, for 55 years. There is absolutely no doubt in my mind that today it is harder on the average to be admitted to an elite university if you have an Asian-sounding name. Nobody's going to go back and look at your background or heritage. But if you have an Asian-sounding name, it's harder to get in than if you have a non-Asian-sounding name. To me, that's discrimination. 
is it discrimination that a university can justify? I don't think so, but uh, diversity trumps everything when it comes to university admissions. Um, look, there are schools that don't uh, discriminate, and they do have large numbers of Asian American students. MIT um, has had a large percent of its students. It's an engineering school. It's a science school. It's a STEM school, science, technology, uh, engineering, math school. And I'm sure its applicant pool has a larger number of Asian Americans than, say, Harvard's applicant pool. But MIT is doing just fine with a very significant number of Asian Americans. The same thing is true of high schools, elite high schools in New York, uh, Bronx High School of Science, um, uh, uh, other tech schools, um, uh, schools in, in, in other parts of the country that are elite schools, particularly those that focus on, on, on science, Stuyvesant High School in New York. Uh, the percentage of Asian American students there is is quite high for several reasons. One, they do, on average, again, you don't want to stereotype or discriminate. They're, within every group, there are some who do better than others. But on average, Asian-American students do very well on standardized uh, tests. And also, because they're not, uh, on average, as wealthy as some other ethnic groups, they tend to go to the public school. So when you combine those two factors, you get a very high percentage of um, kids, uh, men and women alike, who are admitted to and attend and do very well at uh, elite high schools in New York and other areas. Uh, that results as well in some pushback and some discrimination. And there are now efforts to try to eliminate uh, the criteria or change the criteria for admission at, uh, at these schools so as to reduce the number of um, high-achieving uh, Asian uh, students. Uh, that's just not the way America should work. Um, you know, you can lose your job for saying what I'm about to say, uh, but I'll put it in the mouth of Martin Luther King. Uh, America is a country which is based on meritocracy. We should be judging people by the quality of their character, by the hard work they do, by the uh, nature of their accomplishments, not by the color of their skin or by where their grandparents emigrated from or from other factors that are irrelevant to uh, their uh, ability and achievement and work ethic. Uh, so I'm not in favor of uh, race-based discrimination. Um, uh, and you might say, well, am I in favor of race-based affirmative action? Well, race-based affirmative action often results in race-based discrimination when you have a pool of applicants and a limited number of spaces. When Harvard moved into the area of race-based affirmative action, I had a solution that nobody accepted. I said, sure, let's increase the number of African-Americans and other minorities admitted. Let's do that. But let's not take it away from other students. Let's increase the size of the class. Instead of admitting 1,700 students to Harvard's first-year class, whatever that number may be, admit 2,000. That way, everybody has to suffer a little bit from the size of the class. Much better to have 1,700 students than 2,000 students in terms of size of classes. But it's not a big deal. And in that way, the additional 300 that are added based on race-based affirmative action 
aren't taken away from other students. They're just added to the class. It would have caused less resentment. It would have caused fewer lawsuits. It would have caused uh, a lot less friction. But no, Harvard didn't want to do that. And it led to the famous bagel exchange. I'm so, some of you may have heard of that exchange. Uh, the first few years that Harvard admitted more African-American students uh, based on its affirmative action commitment, which I thoroughly approved of. Um, but at the same time that Harvard increased its goal uh, and, 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 and raised the number uh, to uh, by about 10 or 12 percent of African-American students, at the same time, the number of Jewish students was reduced by about that same number. And so a number of us went to see the dean of admissions at Harvard, and we showed the dean the data and said, look, we all support affirmative action. We all support admitting more African-Americans, more people of color, more minorities. But that goal number should not be taken out of one group, should not be taken out of the number of Jews. After all, Jews were subject to quotas just a few years earlier. And the dean of admissions, uh, Chase Patterson or Peterson, I don't remember, but I remember this very vividly, uh, turned to the us, the faculty members, and said, "Look, you have to understand, it's not discrimination. The way we admit students to Harvard is we take them by areas, by geographic areas. And so, if we're taking students from, say, the geographic area around Cleveland, um, we have moved from taking them from the suburbs, and we take them now from the inner city. So, in New York, instead of taking students from." Uh, uh, New Rochelle or White Plains, we take them from uh, Upper Manhattan. Uh, in, in, in Cleveland, we, we no more Shaker Heights. We take them from Cleveland, Detroit, again. Uh, so, so, and then he tried to use a metaphor. So he said, it's like, you know, we're now, we're now, it's a donut. And we're now taking students in the outside circle of the donut rather than the inner circle. And one of the faculty members, I wish it was me, I, it wasn't, cleverly said, Dean, those aren't donuts. They're bagels. And everybody laughed, and the dean looked aghast, and he got the point. Uh, they were taking the quota out of Jewish students who lived in the suburbs rather than in the inner cities for the most part. And over the next few years, it changed. And um, the number of African-Americans didn't change. If anything, thankfully, it, it, it went up. But it didn't come from just one group of people. It was spread around the entire admissions pool so that uh, fewer, uh, fewer white Anglo-Saxon Protestants were admitted, fewer uh, Catholics, Irish, uh, Italian background Catholics were admitted, but it, it didn't focus just on, on one group. I wish it had operated differently. I wish the school just had added admission numbers so as not to take it away from other people who deserve to be admitted. But that's not the way it works, and it can't work that way. In some areas where you have inherently uh, limited uh, room for people, like, for example, in uh, medical school internship or residency programs where you can't just increase the number of students. But there's more we can do, and there's a lot better we can be at dealing with subtle, uh, overt, uh, other forms of racial uh, discrimination. So when we think about discrimination, let's not forget about Asian Americans. Uh, let's remember that they have a history 
of discrimination going back to when they were brought over to work on the railroads and mines and other areas. They were given the hardest jobs in the world, paid the least, and then often denied citizenship. And uh, the history of rampant discrimination, particularly on the West Coast, but all through the United States, against Asian Americans is, is pervasive. Look, there's nothing to compare with the way we treated uh, African Americans, you know, bringing them over the uh, Atlantic uh, crossing, many dying in the process, enslaving them, separating them from their families, Ku Klux Klan, Jim Crow laws, nothing, nothing compares to America's horrible, horrible history of treating uh, African-American uh, people. But, but we have also treated other immigrants very, very poorly in this country. We've treated them very well very well. We've admitted them. We've given them the highest positions. They have achieved uh, great success in this country, but not without a cost, not without some discrimination. So on this day, where we both celebrate Irish Americans on St. Patrick's Day, where we celebrate the great accomplishments uh, that Irish Americans have uh, made to this uh, country in every sphere of life, uh, but we also mourned the loss of six um, uh, women of Asian background killed in these um, massage parlors in and around the Atlanta area. So it's a, it's a mixed day for us of celebration and mourning, and that's the way it should be. We should celebrate the heritage of immigrants in this country, and St. Patrick's Day is a good day to do it. Um, but we should also feel a little guilt and do more about making sure that remnants of discrimination, whether against Irish Americans, Italian Americans, Jewish Americans, Greek Americans, African Americans, you name it, but also Asian Americans, does not increase in this country, that we don't go back to the bad old days where people used uh, terrible words uh, to describe Asian Americans. And overtly discriminated against them. Let's remember how much Asian Americans have contributed to this country in every possible way. And let's remember they are as American as we are. So let's hear your views on immigration, on discrimination. By the time you call in, we may know more about the motivation of the 21-year-old man who has been arrested for the killing, at least in one of the areas where four people were killed. Um, let's hear your views um, on affirmative action, on race-based affirmative action. Let's hear your views generally on how we have treated uh, immigrants to our country, which means how we've treated ourselves, because uh, we are a country of immigrants, whether our parents came over on the uh, Mayflower or our parents uh, came over uh, a month ago from a war-torn country seeking asylum, we should welcome all lawful immigrants, all people who came to America lawfully, legally. Uh, illegal immigration is a different problem. We'll talk about that on subsequent shows. But today I'm talking about legal immigrants, people who were welcomed into the United States, but then not necessarily treated as full, complete American citizens. We can do better. Let's hear what you have to say on The Dirt Show. Now for the wits on The Dirt Show, our first caller. Uh, hi, Professor. Uh, my name is Mike. 
this call is in regards to the big Washington Post retraction of a Donald Trump phone call to Georgia uh, after the election, but before the inauguration. Um, they basically completely made up quotes or their quote unquote anonymous source made up false quotes told by Trump that it seems to me the media's MO today is anonymous source in one publication and all the other publications pick up on that, that same original publication. And then it just gets passed around and around until it seems like it's factual. Um, I don't want the government regulating the media, but should there be a better recourse for media for putting out unverified or completely erroneous false information, essentially making up a, a narrative that I believe was actually quoted in the second impeachment trial now proven to be false. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it and, and what we should do to restore honesty to our media. Thank you. It's a great question. Uh, no media should ever, ever report on an anonymous source based on an anonymous source. Look, there are several different problems. You get media reporting an accusation when the media itself doesn't even know the name of the person. I think that's what's going on in the Cuomo case. The most serious of the allegations, the groping under the blouse allegation. I don't know if the media even knows the name of the woman and they're keeping it secret. If they don't even know the name of the person, they shouldn't be reporting it at all. The second is they know it, but they've been given it on an off the record or background basis. And so they report the accusation or the story, but they don't name the source so that we, the public, can't judge the credibility of the source. We can't judge whether this is a source with a motive. For example, one of the accusers of Cuomo works for his strongest opponent, worked for uh, Mayor de Blasio, and she is running herself for unelected office. And do we trust her? Do we give any credibility to that? Imagine if that were an anonymous source and we didn't know and couldn't uh, evaluate. Or imagine if uh, the accusation against President Biden was given by somebody and the name wasn't disclosed. Uh, once her name was disclosed, uh, the New York Times and Politico did a careful, thorough analysis of her credibility and came to their own judgment, whether right or wrong, that she had a history of not being uh, 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 credible. Um, and so, you know, I agree with you. I, I think their newspaper should not be publishing anonymous accusations, serious anonymous accusations. You can't make a law about it, unfortunately. And so it's really up to uh, newspapers. I do think that it increases the legal liability of uh, media uh, when they uh, make a serious accusation if it turns out to be false and they didn't know who it came from. I think that would show malice. That would show a reckless disregard for the truth. So there may be some legal recourse. It's an interesting issue. I hadn't thought about that. It's a very interesting issue. Here's the way I would pose the question as a constitutional lawyer. If a newspaper or TV, any media, publishes a defamatory accusation against somebody without knowing the name of the person, without doing its due diligence investigation, because it doesn't even know the name of the person, like may have been the case or may be the case in the Cuomo matter. And it turns out that the allegation is false, ultimately provably false. Does the lack of knowledge of the person and publishing it without knowing who they are constitute malice? I think it does. I think it does. And I think it would pass the constitutional test of malice. I wonder if there are any cases on this, I'm not aware of any, or if any of you know of any 
experience based on this, and I'd be interested in what your views are. But again, what a great question. What a great question. It really made me think about something I, I hadn't thought about or didn't know. As, as I told you once before when I used to come home from class, my wife would ask me, do you have a good class? I would say, yeah, I learned something from my students today, and I learned something today from my caller. So thank you. Hey, Professor Dershowitz. My name is Josh from Texas, and I'm calling in reference to your podcast on the, on the individual fired from Slate. Um, in the podcast, you state that there likely won't be any lawsuits over this firing as Slate has protected free speech. And I begin to kick around the legal theory in my head, and I think there's a potential for a federal civil, civil rights lawsuit. The plaintiff could cite the Bostock decision written by Justice Gorsuch. The Bostock decision dealt with sexual orientation and gender identity, and basically Gorsuch said, in the majority opinion, that a business cannot fire an individual for a behavior that they would not fire an individual of the opposite sex for, therefore outlawing discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. If you apply the same reasoning Gorsuch uses on sex to race, you could attack Slate for firing a white individual for a behavior that they would not fire a black individual exhibiting the same behavior. Wow, that's a great point. Um, obviously, this was done under a statute. There is no constitutional right uh, against discrimination by private parties, but there are statutory uh, rights. Uh, the 14th Amendment provides that the government shall not deny equal protection of the laws, but um, statutes go beyond that and apply to businesses. That's a very interesting criteria, and it would really raise... A very significant issue. I, I watched a movie last night, a great movie, United States uh, Against Billie Holiday. It was a terrific movie. And uh, the woman who plays Billie Holiday, what a singer and what a great actor. And boy, I'm rooting for her for every prize uh, that, that there is. But I would say, rough estimate, 50 times, maybe I'm wrong, maybe 30 times, uh, the N-word was used. Uh, a lot of the times, gratuitously. Just... One black person talking to another black person using the N-word as a either friendly or hateful uh, gesture, mostly a friendly gesture. And I, th I thought to myself, um, uh, what rules apply? This is a black actor using the words, but the words were written by somebody. I don't know whether the writer is black or white. I don't know whether the producer, the director is black or white. Uh, and the N-word is just thrown around, just normalized. Uh, it made me uncomfortable. I, don't, I never used that word. I don't remember ever in my life using uh, that word. Growing up, you know, there was an old a ditty um, uh, that, was, uh, that, that went uh, eeny, meeny, miny, moe. And then the next part of it in the original had the N-word in it. And, and, of course, we didn't even know that growing up. We had Catch a Tiger by the um, but the original of that had, had an N-word. It was very much in common use. Um, today, apparently, according to the Billy Holiday movie, it was, that was a movie, a time-bound movie set in the 1940s and 1950s, used as a, almost a greeting, uh, hey, and then, then the N-word when one black person greeted another in the context of the music industry uh, back then. I didn't like it. Um, uh, and uh, I, I thought it was gratuitous and, uh, and done to kind of get in your face uh, a little bit. But uh, uh, the question is, could you apply the standard that's applied by the Supreme Court, which is the correct standard? If you look at gender discrimination, would the person have been hired? 
had everything been the same, but uh, the person had been male instead of female, uh, you can ask the same question. Would the person have been fired if everything were the same except he were um, uh, an African-American instead of a white person? I don't think the courts will ever do that because I think there is something to the argument that uh, a group can use words among themselves that are inappropriate when directed at them. That's a fair point. But having a discussion about that? Come on! We're entitled to discuss it. It's an interesting issue, and we're discussing it right now, right here. Does that mean that if I were uh, at Slate Magazine or teaching at Georgetown Law School, I would be fired for having this discussion? Well, come on. Come on and fire me. I'm ready. Uh, I'll fight back. I think in America we get to discuss everything. We get to discuss anything. We get to discuss anything that's reasonable and debatable. Um, and um, let's keep it that way. I don't want to see restrictions on what ideas can be discussed. And we're seeing that. We're moving more and more in the direction that if, you know, when in doubt, keep your mouth shut, particularly about race, uh, gender, other hot button issues. Keep your mouth, zip it up, zip it up. Anything you say may get you fired. And that's just not America. Hi, Professor Dershowitz. This is Cameron in Colorado. There was some initial reporting in the Chauvin case where he and George Floyd had end up, ended up working for the same nightclub. I believe they were both bouncers. I haven't followed up with any information about this, but I was wondering if that would mitigate some of the factors um, in the charges or mitigate some of the charges against Chauvin if he ended up knowing George Floyd um, and or if it would create even more issues for him based on that fact. Uh, I would love to hear your thoughts and I love the show. Thank you. Thanks for a great question. Um, it would depend on a lot of factors. If they just knew each other, I don't think that would necessarily be admissible. If, for example, Chauvin knew that Floyd had respiratory problems or that he took drugs, uh, that might be an aggravating factor because it might show that when he said, I can't breathe, uh, it was because of a, a unique problem that he, he really had. He, he wasn't just... Uh, complaining. Um, uh, on the other hand, if they had a history together, that would be relevant. If they had animosity, that would be relevant. If they had friendship, that would be relevant. But just working in the same nightclub at the same time, I don't see how it would itself be relevant. But, you know, creative lawyers on both sides often come up with arguments for relevance if they think it will help their position. So stay tuned and we'll see if A, it's true and B, if true, if it is admissible and C, if admissible, it would have any impact on the jury. Very good question. Professor Dershowitz, this is Mike and I'm from Connecticut. I've heard a couple of recent interviews lately with Mike Lindell and uh, Mike has mentioned that he is being sued uh, for his comments about uh, his opinion on the recent election and the fraud that he feels has been committed. And he's also mentioned a couple times that he has hired you as part of his defense team. And I'm curious to find out if you're able to share uh, any comments about that, even from a high level. Thanks, Professor. 
Sure. I'm happy to tell you the the situation. Uh, His lawyers uh, called me and said that they're thinking about making a First Amendment defense. I had already, before I was asked to help on the First Amendment, I had already stated my views on the matter based on what I had heard. And I said, I think I said, I don't think that Dominion is going to collect a lot of pillows on this one unless they can prove not only that the statements that he made were categorically false, but they were done with malice, reckless disregard for the truth, etc. And so I don't know whether it was a result of those statements or just because I'm a First Amendment lawyer. As you know, I've been a lawyer in the Pentagon Papers case, the WikiLeaks case, the Chicago 7 case, the Hair case, the I Am Curious Yellow case, the Deep Throat case, uh, so many, so many cases, the Frank Snepp case. I've probably handled as many First Amendment uh, cases as almost a, a, any American lawyer other than Floyd Abrams and maybe a handful of others. So they called me and I agreed that I would consult with the law firm solely on the First Amendment issue. Um, I I didn't uh, 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 get into a conversation with them, whether I agree or disagree with what uh, Lindell is saying. That's not relevant to me. When I take a First Amendment uh, case, uh, I defended communists. I don't agree with communism. I defended Nazis. I don't agree with Nazism. I defended pornographers. I don't like uh, some of the many of the films that were made. Um, uh, I even defended once a film. It's a horrible, horrible, horrible film. It kept me up at nights. Uh, it was such a graphic, horrible film, but it was protected by the First Amendment. So I don't pick my First Amendment clients based on whether I agree or disagree or like or don't like uh, what they've said, or um, I obviously have to consider whether there was um, any kind of uh, malice or uh, recklessness, and uh, I haven't seen it in this case. So I will be consulting with the law firm. Um, I'm not going to be consulting on the technical issues of the case, the day-to-day issues, um, but I will be consulting with them, giving them my best advice on the First Amendment. I've already had phone uh, conference call with his legal team in which I gave my opinion. I can't share what I gave as my opinion. That is protected by the lawyer-client privilege, but uh, since Mike Lindell has publicly stated that I am part of his team. I can acknowledge that I am a consultant to his legal team on issues relating to the First Amendment. I think it's a very important First Amendment case. I think to censor and allow the shutting down of one important part of the marketplace of ideas uh, regarding an election where millions and millions of Americans, whether rightly or wrongly, think the election was not Uh, a clean election. Um, uh, Certainly, the answer to Lindell is in the marketplace. Let Dominion respond. They have. They have uh, gotten some retail outlets to stop selling his pillows. They have uh, uh, attacked him mercilessly in the court of public opinion. That's where this debate belongs, in the court of public opinion, not in the courtroom. Wonderful Wizard of Law. This is Rich from St. Louis. Hey, Regarding Georgetown, the dean of the school made the absolute correct choice when he fired those professors. It is not the moral choice. It is not the choice that anyone likely would have wanted to make. But in this litigious society, he acted to protect the school. The unfortunate consequence of his wise and proper action is that these folks 
were unduly and unjustly punished. But his actions to protect the school are exactly what he should have done. I couldn't disagree more. Um, I don't think what he did was right. I don't think it was good for the school. I think it was terrible for the school. I think it sent a message that at Georgetown Law School, you cannot discuss certain issues. Uh, Maybe you can't even believe certain issues. Um, I think it has a chilling effect on uh, conversations in class and out of class. Um, I don't think it's good for the school at all. And in a litigious society, you still do the right thing. Nobody could sue these two professors for having that conversation. Uh, nobody was forced to listen to the conversation. Uh, there's no lawsuit. Their conversation. If they were sued, that would be an easy case because what they said is protected by the First Amendment. Because Georgetown is not a public university, though it receives a lot of federal funding, though it's not a a public uh, university, therefore um, the First Amendment doesn't apply and and these people, uh, the professors, can be fired um, for no reason at all uh, unless there are contract provisions or labor union provisions or other provisions that would give a cause of action outside of the First Amendment. But with all due respect, I'd love to have a conversation with you about that. I don't see how it helps the law school. I think this was a great opportunity for an educational moment, for the dean to convene maybe a session of the university, of the whole law school, and have the professors up there explaining why they felt such angst about this, have the dean of admissions talk about the school's affirmative action program, have the academic dean maybe make some suggestions and proposals about how to address the problem, but to bury it uh, by firing two professors because they expressed views that nobody said is wrong. Nobody has come up with any data or statistics to show, oh, no, no, you're just dead wrong. African-American students do just as well as white students on the average. Um, But even if it were wrong, and, and maybe it is, but even if it were, professors have the right to express angst and to say it's driving me crazy that I see this phenomenon, and maybe it's not true of the whole um, uh, law school, but it's true of her class. Uh, Even so, there's no accusation against either of these professors that they downgrade African-American students, that they themselves discriminate based on what they said. They feel, or she feels, terrible about it. He didn't say anything, so I don't know what he's being fired for, and I'd be interested in the caller. You think it was good for the school to fire the guy who sat there and went, mm, mm, mm. I don't even know what mm means, but uh, uh, said nothing because he's guilty of bystander silence. He didn't stand up. He didn't rudely interrupt his colleague. Uh, you know, some of us are ruder than others. Um, I remember my first year teaching at Harvard Law School, Socratic Method, I would interrupt the students in mid-sentence. Once I got the idea and I thought the students in the class got the idea, I wanted to move on. And a couple of students came over to me afterward and said, you know, you're being a little rude. You're interrupting students. And I was a little surprised. I said, where I come from in Brooklyn, it's the highest form of compliment when you cut a person off mid-sentence. It means you got it. I've got your point. Now let's continue. So, you know, that kind of I interrupt people in mid-sentence all the time. And maybe if it were me on the other side of the call, you could say it's Dershowitz. If he doesn't interrupt, that must mean he's agreeing. 
but I don't know about this other fella who is a uh, adjunct professor. Maybe he's one of these really polite guys who just listens to everything. And, and, and you know, somebody says, you know, your mother wears uh, men's underwear. He would go, mm, not interrupt. Uh, so why do you fire a guy for not saying anything? So it really leaves me with the notion that at Georgetown Law School, in discussions involving race, you really have three alternatives. Say what the students want you to say, at least some of the students want you to say. Follow their statements. Say what's politically correct. Whether you believe it or not, say that. You'll be safe. Or else say nothing. You won't be safe. Because if somebody is saying something and you say nothing, bystander, accomplice, liability, and certainly don't say what you believe if what you believe is different from what some of the students and some of the faculty and the dean may believe. Look, I don't know what the dean believes. I'd love to have the dean on this show and ask him a direct question. Do you think what this woman said is false? If not, did she have a right to think it? Yeah. If she had a right to think it, did she have a right to say it in a private conversation which she didn't know was being recorded? Yeah. If she had a right to say it in a private conversation, could she have a public discussion of this, I'd love to be able to confront the dean with some of those hard questions. So if any of you know him, his name is Trainer. Uh, invite him on the show and we'll have a conversation. But in the meantime, we're having this conversation. It's a great conversation. We're never going to be stifled. We're never going to be intimidated. We're never going to be chilled about what we can discuss on The Dirt Show. So please have your friends uh, subscribe, have your friends listen, have your friends watch. And all of you, you and your friends, send in the kind of great questions and comments we've had today and on so many other of the Dirt Shows. An important part of the Dirt Show is your voice, your questions, your comments. Please call 24-7. The number is 216-710-0050. Keep your comments short and to the point. Again, the number for you to call 24-7 is 216 710 0050. Hard questions, criticisms, everything's fine. Just keep your questions short and I'll answer them all on the Dirt Show.